Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 172. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and today I'm going to talk about acceptance. What is it? How do we practice it? But in general, this notion of acceptance. As always, keep in mind you don't need to use what you learned from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learned to simply be a better whatever you already are. So let's jump right in. To understand what acceptance means in the Buddhist context, we need to remember that we're working on the assumption that suffering is what arises not from pain, but from the feeling we have about pain. In other words, our attachment to pain. So how does that work? Well, let me give you an example of the correlation using the teaching of the aggregates in a specific scenario. And this is a real-life scenario that happened to me a few weeks ago. In the last podcast episode, I talked about the teaching of the five aggregates, or at least I mentioned it in the context of the topic of that podcast episode. And those five aggregates are form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. In the Buddhist teachings, these are the five heaps, or the five aggregates that make up you as a person. So... A few weeks ago, I was working on a project that required me to have light. And I have a little light lamp. It's like a headband with a light on it. And I I went to get it. I normally keep it in my nightstand and it wasn't there. So I needed to go outside to see if if I could find it there. And ultimately, I needed to go to the shed to grab a tool. So that's what I was after, a specific tool. I knew that I needed it. And I wasn't sure where it was, so I had to go out and get it. I wanted the light to be able to go see, to be able to see inside the shed. Long story short, my headlamp wasn't there. So, and just as another background to that, I have a bad habit of not putting things back where they belong. I'm really good at taking something and then saying, oh, I'm going to put it here in this one safe spot so that next time when I can't find it, I'll know that it's in this spot. But then I forget what that new spot was. So... Yeah, that's just a character trait that I have. That's one of my aggregates. So I remembered that that I had used the headlamp in the cargo trailer. So I needed to go to the cargo trailer to grab the headlamp to go to the shed to grab the tool. I put on my flip-flops. I run out the front door and I go run into the travel trailer in, in my yard. And it's really dark. It's already completely pitch black outside. And I'm running and I can't see well because I don't have the light. I'm getting the light so I can go find the tool. And on my way there, I suddenly ran into something and stubbed my toe, my big toe. And it hit and it hurt. And I, it took me a second to realize what it was. And I realized it was the bicycle. My son had been out practicing riding his mountain bike. He has several practices per week. And he came home from one of the sessions instead of putting the bicycle away he went and just laid it down on the ground that happened to be right on the path that I was going to be running. And when I ran to the trailer to get my light, that's what I hit. So I knew it had hurt. You know, if you've ever stubbed your toe, you know how painful that can be. And I felt down and grabbed my toe and realized a significant portion of my toenail was missing. It broke the toenail off. So in this moment, my physical form was feeling pain, right? The sense of touch, the part of me that senses and experiences sensations, immediately categorize this as this is 
an unpleasant sensation, it hurts, right? That's pain. That's the part of my mind that's in charge of perceptions. It immediately connected that sensation of pain as unpleasant and caused me not only to reach down and hold my toe, but it also immediately conjured up memories of last time I broke a toenail and how inconvenient that was for, you know, putting on socks or things like that. And that's the part of the mind. If we go back to the aggregate, so we have formless feeling pain, perception decides that pain is unpleasant. And then I have the mental formations that kick in that's drawing up memories, right? And the beliefs and views that tell me not only does this hurt right now, but this is going to hurt for several days. And it also immediately conjures up the beliefs and the views. Had this bicycle been put away where it's supposed to go, I wouldn't have crashed into it. So now I'm developing beliefs around how I should handle this and what I should say next if I run into the house angry at my son. But interestingly, it also conjured up mental formations that had to do with me. If I were better at putting things away, I wouldn't have been running out there to look for the light in the first place. So then there's this sense of discontent or anger, self-inflicted or self-directed anger that also arises. That's all part of the mental formation stage. And as all this is happening, then there's the part of me that's the consciousness, which is tying it all together to give rise to the sensation that not only is there pain in my toe, but this whole sequence of events resulted in someone hurting me, right? That's where the sense of self kicks in and says, it's me, I got hurt. Your actions, in this case in my mind, I'm thinking your actions, my son, hurt me, you know, the individual that is Noah. And that is the aggregate of form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That's kind of how all that works. So in the end, there I was feeling pain and starting to feel the distinction of pain from suffering. Pain is what I felt in my toe, but suffering was what I was feeling in my mind as I became aware of how I wanted things to be other than how they are. So I bring that up because I think this, it's important to be able to distinguish between the two if we want to get to the topic of acceptance. What is acceptance and how do we practice it? So I felt pain in my toe. And I didn't want to be feeling pain in my toe. The bicycle was blocking the path to get to the trailer and I didn't want the bike to be there where it happened to be. My son doesn't always put things where they go. I want him to be putting things where they go. And then of course it goes back to me. I don't always put things back where they belong and I want to be, I want to always put things back where they belong. So in all of those different contexts of not wanting things to be how they are, that's where suffering arises. And outside of that suffering, there's still the pain I have to deal with because the pain is the pain, right? If you stub your toe and it breaks a toenail, that's going to hurt no matter what. But it's the suffering, that's the realm where it's what you do with that pain. That's where that's the realm where we have some power. So how does acceptance fit into all of this? What does acceptance really mean? This is where it gets a little tricky because a simple Google search for the definition of acceptance will show you various definitions. I'll read a couple of these as examples. So the action of consenting to receive or undertake something offering or something offered, I accept this from you or whatever. The action or process of being received as adequate or suitable, typically to be admitted into a group. In other words, we accept you into this group. That's another way to use acceptance. Then there's this one, agreement with or belief in an idea, opinion, or explanation. And this is like the acceptance of 
the teachings of a specific ideology. And then there's this one. I like this one. Willingness to tolerate a difficult or unpleasant situation. And that, the example they give there is I a mood of resigned acceptance. This one I thought is interesting because here acceptance is being used synonymous with toleration, to endure, to suffer something. And that's where it gets tricky because I think when we use the word acceptance in the Buddhist context, it's different than what is implied or meant by the word acceptance in our modern day societal view of what acceptance means. That's where the problem arises. And what is that problem? I encounter this issue when the topic of acceptance is brought up in the Buddhist context and you try to talk about a Buddhist teaching like practicing acceptance or accepting things, it can get really muddy really fast because people will say, well, wait a second, I don't want to just tolerate something. I don't want to, you know, you're not going to want to tolerate an abusive relationship. Does that mean I have to accept that I'm in an abusive relationship or something like that? And the answer is no, a capital N-O, no, because that's not the meaning of the word acceptance in the way that it's used in the Buddhist context. The definition from the psychological point of view, which I think coincides with the Buddhist view, according to Wikipedia, if you look at acceptance in the context of human psychology, it's defined there as a person's acknowledgement of the reality of a situation. And that's it. It's pretty simple when we think of it that way. When I accept something, all I'm doing is acknowledging the reality of a situation, acknowledging something just the way it is. It's nothing more and nothing less. So before I get back to that, if we look at that as the definition, acknowledging the reality of a situation as acceptance, well, let's talk about reality for a moment. Then what is reality? And again, a search for reality as a definition, you'd find that it's the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of how things exist. So the reality is what is, and everything outside of that is not reality. If you look at the opposite of reality, the word they'll give you in a dictionary, it's fantasy. And we all know fantasy is something that's not real. If you look at the definition of fantasy, it's a fanciful mental image, typically one on which a person dwells at length or repeatedly, and which reflects their conscious or unconscious wishes. And now that's pretty fascinating because looking at that definition of fantasy, again, this is all from the psychological perspective, man, we spend a lot of time in fantasy land, don't we, in our own mind, typically dwelling at length or repeatedly, reflecting our conscious or unconscious wishes. To me, that means when I'm in the realm of exploring in my mind, how do I think things should be? Boom, I've crossed into fantasy land. I think acceptance is the acknowledgement of things as they actually are, as opposed to the story we have about how things are, or even worse, how we think things should be, or how we wish things to be. So that brings us back to acceptance as a concept in Buddhism, where it's talked about as being something that you can actually practice. What is it that we're actually practicing when we practice acceptance? Well, we practice the acknowledgement of things as they really are. And you may be thinking, okay, well, now that sounds an awful lot like mindfulness. You know, isn't mindfulness defined as the non-judgmental observation of the present moment? And now you see why mindfulness as a practice is a key element 
for practicing acceptance. I want to get a little bit deeper into this notion of acceptance, but it starts with that, the simple acknowledgement of things as they are. You might say it's the same thing as mindfulness practice, but I think it goes a little deeper. And to see the difference between acceptance and mindfulness as practices, I want to share a little bit of information from a paper that I read written by James Herbert and Lynn Bransma. They wrote a paper called Understanding and Enhancing Psychological Acceptance. And this paper was published. It's chapter four of a book called Health, Happiness, and Well-Being. And that chapter talks about psychological acceptance. So in this paper, they define psychological acceptance as, quote, active embracing of subjective experience. And then they add particularly distressing experiences, close quote. Now, I really like that definition. If I think of acceptance in a psychological sense, it's the active embracing of subjective experience. Have you ever encountered a distressing experience? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we all have. I know that I have. If we go back to the first of the noble truths in Buddhism, that teaching is all around the notion of suffering, distress, anxi yeah, anxiety. There are different ways we can translate that word suffering, but it's hinting at this, right? It's when things are other than how we want them to be. In life, we experience suffering. In life, we will all encounter distressing experiences. Some of those are big, some of them are small, some are much more intense than others. But the point is that everyone's going to experience this, that feeling of wanting things to be other than how they are. We could call that a distressing experience. And we all know that suffering or distress, it comes in various flavors and various sizes, like I said. And the distress that I experienced, for example, with my toe, that wasn't the same as what I experienced a year and a half ago when my dad passed away. But fundamentally, psychologically, I should say, it, it's a similar thing. It's what arises when you want things to be other than how they are. And I think this is important to highlight here. The point is that I can handle distress or stressful situations or experiences in one of two ways. I can handle them unskillfully, where I end up making things worse, more difficult for myself and for others, or I can handle them skillfully and I can reduce the unnecessary suffering for myself and others. We have all had or will have distressing experiences. We can handle these without getting caught up in the judgment of the experience. That is the essence of the practice. That will in turn reduce the suffering for ourselves and others that is caused by the distressing experience. So acceptance from a psychological perspective, which is also the Buddhist perspective, it does not involve any form of judgment or approval. Acceptance is not approval. There is no moral judgment involved at all. Acceptance is simply acknowledging things as they are. It is the active embracing of reality as it is. That's it. So I want to share one other tool or another concept that I think works well with all of this in terms of acceptance as a practice, the active embracing of reality as it is. And this is a, another tool called the OODA loop, and that's O-O-D-A. Anyone in the military may have experience with this notion or this OODA loop, but it's a decision-making 
strategy that was developed by a military strategist named John Boyd. It's a four-step approach to decision-making that focuses on filtering available information, putting that information into context, and then quickly making the most appropriate or skillful decision while understanding that changes can be made as more data becomes available. So it's a decision-making tool. Those four steps are observe, orient, decide, act, O-O-D-A. So the first one, observe, this is where we simply pay attention. We don't make any conclusions, we're just gathering data. We try to identify the situation at hand. So imagine a fighter pilot, because again, that was the original context of this as a strategy. A fighter pilot is flying in the air, and they look on the horizon and they see dots on the horizon. What could they be? They could be friendly planes, they could be enemy planes. But at this stage, the pilot's not counting the dots. They're not trying to make a decision of what those dots are yet because it's too early. This is the simple observe phase. In our case, we're not fighter pilots. We're not looking at dots on the horizon. But this stage for us is more along the lines of what we call mindful awareness. It's the simple art of observing and most importantly, refraining from any judgment at that moment. We can practice this while we look at our thoughts or while we observe the emotions and feelings that come and go. It could be, oh, I think I perceive something there on the horizon. A strong emotion might be headed this way. The emphasis here is that we're not jumping the gun. We're only collecting data. Why? Because acting impulsively or with incomplete data may be very unskillful and it could cause a worse situation. Again, going back to the dots on the horizon, imagine the pilot sees dots and immediately reacts and thinks, oh no, they must be bad guys and starts shooting at the dots. What if they're not? What if they're friendly? Or what if engaging the enemy, it's not the right time. There are too many of them. Maybe the better action would be to turn and fly away. You know, so the idea here is you don't want to jump the gun. You don't want to be impulsive which we call in Buddhist contexts habitual reactivity, right? You just want to observe at this stage. Once you've observed and you're collecting data, then you go into the second part of the loop, which is orient. And think of this as to be oriented is the opposite of being disoriented. It's the difference of I know where I am, I know what's going on, versus I don't know where I am, I don't know what's going on. If you think of a map and you need to orient yourself to be able to read the map, you need to know where you are before you start heading off in the direction you think you need to go. You know, like when we're kids, we're told if you get lost, stay put. Why is that? Because we know that if you get lost and you are not oriented, you could get even more lost if you tried to do something about it. So that's kind of what's going on here. How do we orient ourselves? Well, we observe and we pay attention. After looking around a little bit, imagine you're lost, right? You could notice, oh, okay, that's that street name. Oh, off in the distance, I see that mountain. Oh, okay, here's this building. I'm just collecting data. Once I've collected enough data, I can start to orient myself and say, okay, I think I know which direction I need to walk now. But what you don't wanna do is say, oh no, I'm lost, and you just immediately take off running without evaluating the direction, which is what some kids might do, right? They panic and they're scared and they're uncomfortable because they're alone, so they immediately act. This is a, a decision-making pattern that's trying to put the appropriate 
gaps or pauses in between each of these stages. So that's the orient stage. The fighter pilot may notice the direction those dots are coming from. They may start to notice the color of the dots or insignia, anything that would help them have enough data to feel oriented so that they can eventually make sense of the reality of the situation they're in. Once you are oriented, you have a much more clear idea of what options are available to you. And there's another aspect of being oriented that comes to mind here. It's that once you know how you're oriented, you'll have a better understanding of what it is that you see. You know, that classic image that you see of two people standing, it's a six and a nine on the floor, right? It's, it, well, it's just one. The person standing at the base of the six sees the six, and the person standing on the other side sees the nine. What that implies, that little image, is that we may see things differently based on where we stand. That's the whole point of this step. Once I'm oriented, not only can I look up and say, oh, it's because I'm standing here that I see a six, that also, that orientation also gives me the ability to say, oh, I see why you see a nine, because you're standing on that side of it. So it's a very useful thing to be able to be oriented. All right, so once you've observed enough to gather all the relevant data, you've oriented yourself with the data that you've collected, now you're ready to move on to the next stage, which is decide. In the decide stage, this is where you make the assessment of all the possible decisions you can make. I like to run multiple scenarios in my mind to try to visualize what are the consequences of each of these potential decisions I could make. You could call this the hypothesis building stage. This is where you formulate, if I do this, that might happen. But if that happens, this other thing might happen, right? You're developing your hypothesis. So you have your hypothesis ready, and probably, realistically, it's multiple hypotheses that you have ready. You can pick the one that seems best for that specific set of circumstances that you're in. Going back to the fight, fighter pilot as the example, this is where the fighter pilot decides, okay, if I engage the enemy, this or that might happen. If I turn and head towards base, my friends might take off and they'll assist me. If I So they're running those scenarios. In our personal practice, I think this is where we start to decide, should I do something about this? Should I stop doing something? And again, this is not about the answer itself. This is about the process that we use to arrive at what we think will be the answer. Because we do have to acknowledge here that the answer might be different. Going back to the pilot analogy, a really highly skilled pilot is probably a little bit more capable to take on the enemy. If you're a novice pilot and this was your very first flight, it's probably not skillful to go engage the enemy. You know what I mean? So it's not about the answer. The answer may be different for people based on their understanding of the reality of their situation, taking in the complete picture. Another example of this decide notion that I think is really useful and I've used it in the past is the self-assessment of, imagine I'm, I'm going on a hike and I know that I'm gonna go on this trail and it looks rugged and it has sharp looking rocks and I look down at my feet and I recognize, oh, I'm wearing my flip-flops today. It might not be the most skillful path. It might be the shortest path to get to where I'm going, but walking around on the, you know, on the sand that also leads to that same place, but may, maybe takes a lot longer. For me, that might be the most skillful path. And then I look at you and I say, well, you've got hiking boots and you've got a walking stick. 
yeah, you should probably do that one. So the answer for me is this way and the answer for you is that way. Then you might be standing there and you're someone who does have hiking boots and does have, you know, a walking stick, but you also have very bad arthritis and you're, I don't know, maybe your health isn't the best to be climbing up that hill. So on the surface, it would seem like that is the path that you're equipped for. But then upon further introspection, you might say, you know what, you probably want to go this way too. And you take this path. What I'm trying to get at is there are so many factors and circumstances that this process is not about the answers. It's about how we arrive at the answers because the answers could be different. All right. So back to the process. Now that we've decided we have our hypothesis, now we're going to move on it. We're going to act. And this is where we are essentially testing the hypothesis. The reason I bring this up in the context of hypothesis and testing hypothesis is that we can evaluate the moment we put into practice that hypothesis, is it working? Should I continue or should I pivot? Pivot to a new strategy. And that word pivot, that is the key element to this entire process. That's why we call it a loop. So hiking in the, in the mountains barefoot may not be working well for me. I thought that it would, but now I'm observing what's happening to my feet. And this is the part of the loop where I would return back to observing. What is it that I'm observing? The results of the actions that I just put into place. I started hiking barefoot. Okay, well, that's not working. I'm observing that it's not working. And I repeat the loop, making a new hypothesis. It might be, okay, maybe I should turn around, go back down and find another way around. And it can take time before we know for sure if our action was skillful or not. Maybe it was skillful, but then another variable is introduced more dots on the horizon. Now I was on, you know, headed towards these dots to engage, but now I see more dots. Okay, then I reevaluate. What's the next skillful thing to do here? So we're constantly testing our hypothesis and we're adjusting it as needed. The loop goes on. It works well with the notion of impermanence and with a notion of interdependence. Things are always changing. Therefore, my assessment of how things are should also always be changing. And this decision-making model allows for that because again, it's a loop. So back to the topic of the episode, acceptance. How does acceptance kick into all of this? How do we actually practice it? Well, I think if acceptance is the active embracing of a subjective experience, then it's clear to me first and foremost that acceptance is definitely not a passive process. It's not resignation, like I've said many times before. It's what's taking place while we observe and while we orient ourselves. So using the OODA loop, you could think of the practice of acceptance as those first two steps, observe and orient. I perceive dots on the horizon. Okay, that is the reality of the situation. There are dots on the horizon, but I'm not going to pretend that they're not there. I'm going to acknowledge the reality of that situation. And then I actively embrace that. I embrace the fact that I am in an airplane and there are dots on the horizon and I don't know what they are, right? That's all that is. That is what it means to practice acceptance. And the reason it's important to practice this is because of how easy it is to be reactive and that becomes habitual. So habitual reactivity is where we get more and more comfortable with doing unskillful things, right? you're lost and you immediately start running down the wrong direction. We do that a lot. As, as funny as it sounds, when you visualize it like this, that's what we do. I think our brain is an amazing organ 
but it's also known for being quite faulty at times. And that's what happens in our brain. It gets reactive. Oh, I'm feeling this emotion. I don't like that. And boom, I'm going to go do something unskillful without even thinking about it. I'm just, my brain's habitually reactive. A few weeks back in one of our live Sunday Zoom calls, Bruce shared a quote that I really enjoyed. And it's something that Aliyah Crum said on the Hidden Brain podcast in an episode called Reframing Your Reality. But what she said, and this is the quote, she said, quote, our brain's whole job is to prepare, prioritize, and regulate the internal body based on what it believes to be true about the external environment, close quote. I really like that quote because the brain regulates the internal body based on what it believes to be true about the external environment. If my brain's entire job is to regulate what's happening inside based on what it thinks is happening outside, then it seems to me like it would be a pretty good idea for me to use decision-making tools like practicing acceptance or the OODA loop to make the most accurate assessment of what's really going on out there. Because if it's not what's going on out there that affects what's going on in here, it's what my brain thinks is happening out there. That's what affects what's going on in here. So my brain, that's the key. I got to understand how does it work? Going back to my toe and the correlation of that pain and suffering, externally, I'm feeling the pain of my encounter with a bicycle tire. But in here, my mind is actively embracing the subjective experience that it's having. It's gathering data. It's orienting itself to decide what to do next. It's coming up with scenarios, decisions that I could make. And ultimately, it picks a scenario that believes is the most skillful. And in my case, that meant I'm going to pick up the bicycle, put it where it goes so that doesn't happen again. And I'm also going to talk to my son and I'm going to just show him my toe and explain, hey, look what happened. Here's why this is important that we put things away. It also motivated me to try to be better at putting things where they go and leaving my headlamp in the nightstand so that I have it next time I need to venture out in the darkness. But for me, nowhere in that process was there the unskillful reactivity that could have triggered greater suffering for myself or for others, for my son. One arrow was enough. I didn't want the second arrow. I didn't need a second arrow. So in my case, that prevented me from running into the house, being all mad, screaming at my son, something that it's like, could I make him feel really bad and guilty for doing that? Well, sure, I could have. Would that have helped? I don't think that it would have. I think he was capable of seeing, look at the pain I'm in. Oops, I caused that. Not making him feel guilty, but just helping him understand, hey, this is what happens when things are done the way that they are. So let's put the bike where it's supposed to go. And that was it. I don't think it'll be this traumatic experience uh, because of the way it was handled. And again, I'm not saying that's the right way or the wrong way, but that's what the decision-making process in my mind as I was going through all of that, that's what practicing acceptance looks like for me. Now, notice that again, in that example, practicing acceptance doesn't say, all right, well, I'll accept that if the bike's just going to be there, then I won't do anything. No, I feel like I've taken active steps to prevent that from happening again. So it's an active process. It's not a form of resignation. Oh, well, bikes will always be in the way. It's not that. For me, it's a very active practice. 
And I don't think we need or want to go through life simply tolerating negative experiences. When we actively embrace the situations that are outside of our control, and we do that without judging, it reduces the suffering that we would normally experience from these situations. And for me, that in a nutshell is the practice of practicing acceptance, or again, the practice of actively embracing our subjective experience of life as it unfolds. And I like that as a practice, active embracing. We do it all the time with all the other concepts, right? That's the whole notion of the game of Tetris. These pieces show up, I can actively embrace the experience of now, this is the piece that I have. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to be skillful with it? What doesn't have to happen there is resignation. Oh, well, I guess I won't do anything. I got the square. It's not that. It's I'm going to actively embrace, dang, I got this square. I sure didn't want it, but okay, what do I do with it now? That's it. It's the active embracing of subjective experience as a practice. So my invitation to you is to take this concept of practicing acceptance or practicing the active embracing of reality as it is and give it a try and see how it works out for you, the relationship you have with the experiences that you're having as they unfold. All right, that's all I have for this episode, but I look forward to sharing more thoughts in a future episode on a different topic. If you're interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, or you can listen to the first five episodes of this podcast. If you're looking for community to practice and to interact with, consider becoming a podcast supporter by visiting secularbuddhism.com, clicking on community, and you'll get more information there. All right, that's all I have for this episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time.